Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has set a date of July 1st to begin Israel's annexation of major parts of the occupied West Bank. Under Netanyahu's plan, Israel would declare sovereignty over all the illegal settlements built on Palestinian land since 1967, including in the Jordan Valley. Netanyahu has a green light from Washington. The Trump administration has said it will recognize Israel's annexation of up to 30% of the West Bank. For the rest of the world, the annexation move is the latest grave escalation of Israel's illegal occupation of Palestinian land since 1967. In a statement, a group of 47 independent UN legal experts called the annexation plan, quote, a vision of the 21st century apartheid. Well, joining me is Norman Fickelstein, author and scholar. His latest book is called I Accuse. Norman, welcome to Pushback. Uncertainty still about what exactly Netanyahu is going to do on July 1st. But what do you think people should know about his talk of annexing the West Bank? Well, there are several things. First of all, it's clearly illegal under international law. Uh, secondly, what seems to have prompted it is not law, but brutal politics, namely Mr. Netanyahu's of the opinion, which is probably correct, that he has an opportunity which won't come again to carry out a large scale legal annexation of parts of the West Bank, and that Trump may not be around after November, it's a question mark, and he wants to take advantage of that opportunity. Um, and I would say, thirdly, you have to always bear in mind two things about Mr. Netanyahu. Number one, he is um, a showman. He's not really a statesman, he's a showman, he's a performance artist. And number two, he is acutely aware of political opportunities. In that regard, he's a politician for sure. He, he takes advantage of, he exploits political opportunities uh, as they come along. There are many examples, actually, you'd be surprised there's actually a scholarly and academic literature showing how Israelis exploit, take advantage of political opportunities that come along uh, in order to achieve their goals, media opportunities, I should say. Um, so with that in mind, there is the possibility that an annexation will occur though it's still a question mark. Uh, my own opinion is there seem to be three main variations. Obviously, there are subdivisions of the variations, but one is annex the Jordan Valley. Two is annex the settlement blocks. And three is annex large chunks of the West Bank Coming, the official figure is 30%. I'm more inclined to believe it's 40%, but that's beside the point. Uh, I do not believe he will annex the Jordan Valley because it's a question of how it looks, the image projected. So I said at the beginning 
Mr. Um, Netanyahu, he's uh, basically a showman, a performance artist. And so if you look at the map, what it would look like if on one end is Israel, on the other end is the Jordan Valley, and in the middle, sandwiched between, are all these Palestinians who don't have any voting rights. If you look at the map, it looks like apartheid, because it looks like if one border is the Jordan Valley, the other border is what's called the Green Line, namely Israel before the June 1967 war. And then in between are all these Arabs who have no voting rights. It looks like one state where a large chunk of the population is disenfranchised. That looks like apartheid. So I don't think he's going to do that. A second possibility is annexing, large, annexing the whole of the West Bank, or large chunks of it. Again, same problem. What do you do, how do you represent to the world all those Arabs in the West Bank who have no rights, who have no voting rights, which are the baseline for any rights in our in our world so or rights in the state is citizenship and they don't have citizenship so that doesn't look good but there's a third possibility the third possibility is the settlement blocks now if you look at the map if you annex the settlement blocks they border the green line more mostly they border the green line so that looks okay on the map israel officially claims to annex the settlement blocks would mean annexing five percent of the west bank uh, in fact it would be ten percent because they play with the numbers they cook the numbers it would be about ten percent of the west bank and if you look at the map there are two settlement blocks, one called Ariel and one called Male Adunim. Now those settlement blocks on the ground, on the ground, they bisect the West Bank more or less at the center because Male Adunim stretches more or less to Jericho. And then there is the second uh, settlement block, Ariel Shamron, which will bisect the northern half of the West Bank. However, if you look at the map, it doesn't quite look that way because the map doesn't show the mountainous areas or areas which are mountainous, which means it doesn't look fully like a bisection uh, of the West Bank. The point is, in my view, without going into all the technicalities, you probably can get away with annexing the settlement blocks. First of all, 
all the Democratic Party and Republican Party leadership has always said that Israel would get the settlement blocks anyhow in a final settlement. That's what Dennis Ross says, and uh, it's pretty much a concern. Dennis Ross being the former so-called uh, so peace envoy for the Clinton administration. Yeah, so, and he's actually recommended now that Israel annex not the whole West Bank, not the Jordan Valley, just annex the settlement blocks. He's officially on record supporting that. And so, first of all, the Democratic and Republican, the political elites have supported Israel's annexation of the settlement blocks already. Secondly, you can put the pretense or make the pretense that there's still a possibility of a Palestinian state because it's only 5% of the West Bank. Thirdly, it can be cast as Netanyahu making a gut-wrenching compromise. He wanted the whole of the land of Israel, <laughs> and he had to appease the right wing of his coalition. And so he makes his gut-wrenching compromise. Um, to annex some territory because otherwise his coalition is going to fall apart. Similar to what they did in Gaza back in back in 2005, around then when Sharon reluctantly gave up Gaza, and that was there was a huge stage performance, and there were the scenes of the settlers being pulled out, and they were wailing, and we're supposed to feel sorry for them. Meanwhile, Israel, as it's pulling out of Gaza, it's console it's consolidating its control and expanding its control over the much more valuable territory in the occupied West Bank. Listen, I've said many times, if there were an Academy Award and Oscar for best dramatic performance by a nation state, <laughs> Israel would win hands down every year. There wouldn't even be competition. It would be like comparing Sir Lawrence Olivier with Brad Pitt. I mean, Israel is so practiced at the art of performance. Uh, and so they will manage to turn this illegal annexation, which will enable Israel to appropriate some of the best farmland uh, in agricultural land in the occupied Palestinian territories and would effectively make a Palestinian state and preclude the possibility of a Palestinian state for geographic and uh, economic reasons, which I don't want to bore re uh, listeners with, they'll manage to turn it into another agonizing, anguishing, gut-wrenching compromise by Israel. And you can already, I could write the script. I can write the script. So I think that's probably what will happen. Uh, and everybody will be in a celebratory mood. On uh, No, quite the contrary, take that back. Um, Israel, uh, uh, the Israeli pop, uh, right wing 
I should say the Israeli right, right, right wing, because there's a right, 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 right wing, there's a right, right, right wing, and there's a right wing. There's no center and there's no left in Israel. So unusual state in the world in that regard. But the right, 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 right wing, and the right, right will be so angry, and they'll be so indignant, and everybody else, the New York Times, um, will be celebrating the fact that Netanyahu made a, a pragmatic decision that kept the two-state solution alive. There are countries, though, around the world who are at least publicly criticizing this. Does this open up the way possibly for some actions like sanctions to be taken against Israel if it illegally annexes territory that it is not legally entitled to? I don't believe that will happen because <clears throat> the way it's going to be um, uh, presented to the world, it'll be presented as a pragmatic compromise. It won't be presented as an illegal annexation. They'll keep repeating the fake figure of five percent they're going to keep saying anyhow we all know that in the final settlement the settlement blocks would have been annexed by israel in a land swap and they'll make it all legitimate and there'll be no reaction i, I i'm very skeptical of the kinds of apocalyptic scenarios which are conjured up and in fact the apocalyptic scenarios um um, abet uh, Netanyahu's agenda, um, and probably he does it intentionally. I don't know how much he calculates down to the fine points, but he likes the idea of these apocalyptic scenarios because then he's going to say, but it's only 5%, and it's going to make him look reasonable. So all this talk about uh, uh, sanctions, nothing. Did anything happen after Trump moved the uh, the uh, cap moved the U.S. Uh, capital to or recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital? Nothing. But let's point out something positive, which is that Bernie Sanders came somewhat close to the nomination and during the process his advocacy of basic Palestinian rights was popular and that message is increasingly resonant uh, inside the democratic base so as we wrap in terms of holding Israel accountable pushing back on the Trump administration's support for Israeli annexation do you see a ray of light possibly right here inside the US when it comes to sentiment towards Israel and people no longer be willing to except for those in Congress, to, to stand by as it commits its atrocities? Um, Netanyahu, uh, Trump's biggest ally in the world is Netanyahu. That doesn't play very well <laughs> with a lot of people, you know, even people who support Israel. It just doesn't play well because you're supposed to be anti-Trump if you're a Dem member of the, De you know, if you're a Democratic party member or you support any of the popular causes, you're supposed to be anti-Trump. So it doesn't play very well 
that Trump has the closest alliance of any world leader with Netanyahu. Uh, so there is uh, an unexpected, um, unexpected um, consequence of the Trump presidency, which it ended up even further discrediting the Palestinian cause in even mainstream American politics because of that Trump-Netanyahu alliance. Not, not discrediting the Palestinian cause. Or the, the, discrediting the Israeli yeah. cause yeah. Um, because of that alliance. So, yes, it's been a positive development. It's part of, as I said, the large, uh, the long-term shift in public opinion as Israel has moved further and further to the right and therefore, and a lot of the truth has come out and making the cause indefensible. Uh, a, lot of, a lot will depend on whether you can make the Palestinian cause again, a, make it a salient issue in American political life. If, for example, Palestinians found the wherewithal to demonstrate um, and engage in collective action, there's some reason for hope. It's going to be very tough under Biden if he wins, impossible under Trump. It's just a very, it's a very difficult period right now. I, I, don't, I don't believe in giving people false hope. I think it's a very tough period right now. But as you say, the, the positive thing is public opinion is shifting. It's becoming more uh, manifest as against latent, more active as against passive. Um, and it's an opportunity for people to work for their, so to speak, cause, so to speak, their cause within a larger progressive uh, or radical framework. So there are, there are possibilities. Um, that's the most I can say. I think I'm from at a very young age, I read a speech by the African revolutionary at the time, Amakar Cabral, who was a leader of a movement called the PAIGC in a tiny, tiny, tiny little country called Guinea-Bissau. Um, and he had given a speech and the title was, <clears throat> the title given the speech was Tell No Lies, Claim No Easy Victories. Hmm. So I'm not very good, I, and that resonated with me. I felt that's the right approach to politics. Tell no lies, claim no easy victories. So I'm not one for pep talks. I, um, I try to be analytical. I try to be objective. I try to be realistic. Because otherwise, I feel it's patronizing. It's like, I know the truth, but I can't tell you the truth because you're not ready for it. You're not equipped for it. So I have to pretend as if things are better than they actually are so as to lift your spirits because you need you need useful lies 
to keep you going, but I don't. No, I don't do that. Uh, I think that you can be honest about the situation. I'm honest about the situation with myself. I recognize uh, that we're at a very difficult moment. But truth be told, it doesn't diminish an iota. It doesn't diminish an iota of the energy I invest in this. Because for me, it's not about Palestinians. It's not about Jews. At one point in my life, yes, it was. And I'll acknowledge that. I just felt a revulsion at what these people, how they had uh, exploited and corrupted the memory of my parents suffering during World War II for an insidious cause. It's not about that anymore for me. It's not about Palestinians. It's not about Jews. It's not about corrupting the memory that my parents endured during the memory of what my parents endured during World War II. For me, it's about two very basic things. And it took me a very long time to reach this point in my life that it's no longer about anything personal. And it's not even about, I'm afraid I, well, no, it is about people. It is. Because the memory of my parents' suffering is permanently engraved in me. But fundamentally, at root, at its core, it's about truth and justice, those eternal values. And when I see them sullied or prostituted, it nauseates me. It makes me so angry that people can be so cheap, sell themselves at such a low price, a mess of professional porridge, they'll sell out those values. It's a very interesting thing for me, and we'll leave it at that. It's a very interesting thing for me that all of these stupid leftist postmodernists who say there's no such thing as truth, there's no such thing as justice, these are all social constructions, these intellectually impoverished morons. Well, and then, wait, allow me. And then you go to the demonstrations for against police brutality in commemoration of what happened to uh, George Floyd and many others. And what's the slogan that's most popular at these demonstrations? What do we want justice? When do we want it now? What do we want justice? Excuse me. When do we want it now? And I think to myself, well, all these stupid, intellectually impoverished, so-called academics sit around at stupid, ignorant, irrelevant conferences talking about how justice and truth are all just social constructions. When the moment comes, we all reach back 
to those same fundamental values, truth and justice. What do we want? Justice. What do we want? When do we want it? Now. Those values will, so long as humankind endures, those values, that value, will forever resonate. Norman Finkelstein, author and scholar. His latest book is called I Accuse. Norman, thanks so much. You're welcome.